0: Welcome back to the Cloth Cultures podcast for the British Textile Biennial, with me, Amber Butchart. Throughout this series, I'm exploring the Lancashire Textile Gallery, a new online resource that brings together objects and artefacts held by museums, archives and manufacturers from across the county. I'll be speaking to curators, artists, enthusiasts, and researchers about everything from the exquisitely detailed medieval embroidery known as Opus Anglicanum to costumes worn by visitors to Blackpool's Pleasure Beach in the 1930s. And Blackpool is exactly where we find ourselves for this episode and I for one could not be happier. I was delighted to speak to Caroline Hall from Showtown, Blackpool's new Museum of Fun and Entertainment, about seaside modernism and the intriguingly named Yama Yama suits.
1: Hi, I'm Caroline Hall, and I am the Curatorial and Collections Manager for Showtown, which means that I uh, manage our collections. I work on our research strategy and what stories to pull out. Uh, I work with our content team who are putting together the amazing permanent galleries and uh, it's just the best job in the world.
0: Now, Caroline, we have just realised that we actually have a longstanding link and we've even worked together in the past because it's no secret that Blackpool is one of my all time favourite places in the world. I absolutely love it. And I used to come really regularly and DJ at the Shazam festival, which happened every February and we would me and I was half of a, a DJ act called The Broken Hearts and we were DJ in the Tower Ballroom and it was just the most magical, wonderful experience. And you worked on Shazam. I
1: did. I worked on the first Shazam. So um it was so weird when we realised, but I worked for as the events manager for a programme called Admissional Classes, which was a series of events inspired by the research into the history of Blackpools Entertainment, um, in partnership with the University of Sheffield. And one of our events we hosted was the first Carnival Ball, which featured as the first event we did for the first Shazam, which is where it all started from. Um, it's, It's brilliant. (laughs)
0: So brilliant. And so that, looking into the sort of heritage, the history of Blackpool's entertainment, that's obviously something you're working on now with Showtown. Um, And so were the seeds of that kind of laid in the work that you did with Shazam?
1: I think Shazam was just one more layer, kind of one more breadcrumb towards where we, we got to. It was the kind of culmination of a movement in Blackpool that had already started. I mean, there is a group of people, there is a community within Blackpool that have worked hard for a long time to shout about Blackpool's history and heritage and promote Blackpool's history and heritage and preserve it. And and that kind of grew and grew and to the point where Blackpool launched its first heritage strategy, which was a lot later than the rest of the country. It was late on the heritage bandwagon. And at the launch of that um, strategy, a conversation came for the project this Admissional Classes project. And then that happened, which really grew a swell of community support and really engaged people. And then a kind of alongside that Shazam grew out and Admissional Classes participated in Shazam and more things happened. And it did, it just created this real awareness of how special Blackpools Entertainment history is. And it really is.
0: It really, really is. It really is. I just love visiting so much at all of the different areas that the Winter Gardens, so beautiful. Blackpool Tower is one of my favourite places in the whole world. There's just so much to do there and it's just all so beautiful. I love it so much. So much to work with. Can you share a bit about what we can expect to see at Showtown?
1: Um, yes, it's going to be, it's going to be amazing. I mean, I would say that I'm biased, but it's going to be amazing um, because uh, the museum will be family friendly fun experience families and children is really really important to us um a lot of our our work has geared towards so um, one of the galleries where we're dealing with the um golden mile we have done with a co-production group um, so we're working with young people because obviously the golden Mile is quite sensitive it's body issues it's self-image the golden mile as it is now is a lot of arcades the golden mile as it was think cody island think um come and see the strange woman um you know there was there was those um sideshows like the starving brides on you know there were things on the golden mile that were acceptable then that maybe aren't acceptable now well not maybe that aren't acceptable now um and so and we really wanted to to show what the character of the golden mile was but we 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 had to do it in a sensitive way there was we had to work out how to do it the right way so we're trying to work with the community um very much so um our dance you know we did a major dance project called get dancing which is still out there people can learn it and we created a new blackpool novelty dance uh so we worked with a Uh, an artist to create a new piece of music based on uh, a piece of music from the 1930s called the Blackpool Walk, which was a novelty dance at the time just after the Lambeth Walk came out. Um, And people contributed all dance moves over social media, over TikTok, they each contributed dance moves. And then we worked with local choreographers to put that together to create a new novelty dance. So, um, you know, this being a museum of Blackpool, but for Blackpool and the lo- and the visitor is really really important to us it's really really important that local people feel that their voice is there we've got uh, a main permanent exhibition space which has five themes we have five permanent galleries we have beside the seaside kind of self explanatory we have house tricks which tells the story of you know most people don't know the story of the Blackpool magic convention which is an incredible magic convention in the the magic world. Um, But then aside that, the history of Blackpool's magic shops, which a lot of people don't know about and are special in themselves. Um, Then kind of beyond that, we've got Roll Up, Roll Up, telling the story of circus in Blackpool, and in particular, the amazing Blackpool Tower Circus, which is very, very special. Uh, Then we've got an illuminations gallery, variety in shows, comedy, music, the summer shows all those amazing things all those amazing people that have visited Blackpool uh, and then dance Blackpool is really really major in the history of dance ballroom dance um, so we've got a whole gallery dedicated to dance and it, it's going to feature a lot of items from our collection we've made a lot of relationships with people and they've we've got pri- uh, loans from private collectors um, and we've got loans from major institutions like the v um, so some of their their material on Tommy Cooper, um, you know, some of their costumes, it's uh, it's just going to be wonderful.
0: Can you give a brief rundown of the story of the Pleasure Beach itself? Because it still has such an iconic place in Blackpool's history, I think. And also, you know, the place of the history of Blackpool as an entertainment capital of Britain as well.
1: It is, I mean, the Pleasure Beach is almost like a thing in and of itself, but it's a major part of Blackpool. and. And it's symbiotic to what else is going on in Blackpool as well. But the um, its early history is very is very um, telling of what Blackpool was. Blackpool was a town of entrepreneurs. So the seaside holiday boom, the seaside holiday trend started, and people started coming to the seaside. And then people started changing what they did in their communities to cater to those people, and then more people came. And it was it just went on. And then the railway came and there was this massive boom of people and then more attractions were put on A North Pier was built, which really drew people in and more people came. And so more attractions were made. So by 1896, when a, a Mr William Bean brought his American amusement attraction, amusement attraction to the town, it, there was already lots of people trying to cater to the tourists. And a, a group of uh, different attractions, a switchback railway, a couple of roundabouts, had kind of grouped together on the sands in the south of Blackpool. And so he decided to put his Hodgkiss bicycle railway there, which was a ride in which the bicycle was like upside down on a track. Um, and he'd, he'd seen it in America when he was in America and he would bought the UK patents and he brought it to the UK. And, and, and to cut a long story short, cause I could make this several hours long. Um, he, he, he put, he put that collection of rides into a structure and he brought kind of organization to it and in started introducing more rides to the, to the area bought land and it, it grew into the pleasure beach. And he kept that American, he was back and forth to America all the time. Um, And he he was introducing American ride technology throughout that really early period. Um, So, I mean, an amazing example is the Dodgums, which came to Blackpool in 1921, uh, very shortly after they'd been kind of created in America. And it was the first introduction of Dodgums to Europe when it came to Blackpool Pleasure Beach then. So that is the kind of level of kind of um, technology, amusement technology inspiration that's coming to Blackpool first from America because of William Bean and because of what he's building at the Pleasure Beach. Um, William Bean then passes on and the park, the running of the park passes to Leonard and Doris Thompson. Doris is William Bean, Bean's daughter and Leonard is the son-in-law and it, so it passes to a new generation and that is when this kind of Redesign of the park happens and they want to modernize and they want to do more. They keep the relationship with America, they're going back and forth to America. They bring the pretzel ride over. The pretzel ride in the pleasure beach becomes the ghost train, and we have the first known ghost train because they coined the name for how they themed their pretzel ride, which is a single track ride where the carriage moves along one track so it can come back on itself like a pretzel. Um, and they start introducing shows they introduce the ice parade which is still going today as hot ice so they just keep on adding to the park and creating this vision for the park and it, it i mean and it continues to the de- to today still in the hands of the thompson family and it's an example of what happened when entrepreneurship goes right and it it succeeds and it grows um, and and that's why it's so indicative of blackpool
0: and with this real incredible heritage, history of entertainment and fun, there is so much that you can have in the Showtown collections. There's so much to do with costume as well, that's really important. One thing you have, I know, is the Yama Yama suits, which I'm really excited to hear more about. Could you tell me a bit about these garments and the story behind them?
1: Oh, I, I just, I love these um, items so much because they are really unassuming on the surface. I mean, when you just tell, tell people, their overalls, they don't sound very impressive, but what they tell is really, really impressive. The Yama Yama suits are um, just coveralls um, that protect your clothes when you're in the Blackpool Pleasure Beach funhouse. Uh, and so that's one side of the story, which is, you know, when people came on holiday, they came in their best clothes. And you have to understand what the funhouse was. It was an amusement palace. It was. Um, a giant playground for adults and kids alike. You went in and there was giant slides, there was moving floors, revolving floors, revolving tunnels. It was just this giant adventure park, but it was physical play. It was, you know, things could get rough in there. Um, So um, because people came in their best clothes on holiday, protecting those clothes was a real concern they didn't have disposable incomes they didn't have kind of just a movable wardrobe all the time so the yami yama suit was designed to be put in place to, to cancel out those concerns to encourage people to come into the fun house so that's what they are on one side but it's their place in the design and the development of the pleasure beaches is, is what i really love and um, so What you have to understand is that the the Funhouse opened in 1934 and it was one of the first buildings designed by an architect called Joseph Emberton, who was an amazing British modernist architect. It was a beautiful example of early British modern art deco design. Uh, Straight lines, geometrics, smooth corners, minimal surfaces. It was really a stark contrast to the Victorian architecture and the Edwardian architecture that predated it um and uh he was one of the first designers brought on board by the pleasure beach when they were looking at completely revisioning the park and they were they were looking at the whole park and they weren't just looking at architecture they were looking at the internal design the signage the graphic design the colors the menu design the the, the uniforms that people wore they they were trying to transform the whole park and it took you know, a good 10 years, they were moving through this, but the fun house was one of the early, kind of holistic approaches to this. So, Jovis Emberton designed the building, uh, Charles Page, the American amusement designer, designed the mechanics of the inside of the building, but the whole thing, the interior design, the costumes, the Yama Yama suits, they were designed as a whole. So when you look at those Yama Yama suits, you're looking at this, modernist vision, this visual identity that the park was was creating for itself and for the people, you know, this is high design. And this is the everyday working class people coming on holiday to Blackpool that would be wearing it. So it's just, it just says so much.
0: I absolutely love that idea of them being coveralls that people can put on over their best holiday clothes while they go to the fun house. It's just wonderful. Can you describe the Yama Yama suits in detail like what kind of colours what kind of silhouette are we talking about here
1: it's, it's interesting because the two things are juxtaposed. so the silhouette imagine your bog standard kind of warehouse overall coat it's like a but instead of buttons it, it wraps over so it's like a, a wrap over one but actually when you look at it every panel of the Yama suits Yamayama Yama suit is a different colour and each Yama, Yama suit has a different color palette. So you can have yellow on the left, blue on the right, a red color. Uh, one of the belts for the wraparound is brown. One of them is green. The, the, the arm could be a juxtaposing. Cause so if you've got one side of the, the suit red, the sleeve may be blue, but the cuff may be yellow and the button may be red. It's, it's, it, and it's very much geometric, it's colourful um, and it just, but the way it wraps around and ties, the, the juxtaposition of the colours look very modern, they look that early modern design, the way the colours work together and the shapes work together. Because it's a robust coat, the shapes of the colour panels are very defined and robust, so it's a very bold outfit. It is a very bold outfit, on.
0: It sounds perfectly Blackpool to me. It sounds, sounds wonderful. Do you know of any other examples of these Yama Yama suits in any other collections in the country or in the world?
1: No I mean I, I have googled I have looked for the name Yama Yama and I have found some different readings and it's about hard wearing and it's about protection I think um, but I've not seen examples anywhere else. I mean we have three or four Yama Yama suits and each one's a different colour palette but they're all the same design. But I've never seen anything anywhere else like this, no.
0: And how did the Yama Yama suits come to be in the collections of Showtel Museum?
1: This is a hard one. So we're not sure. Um, so, But to put it in context, so Blackpool uh, never had a whole collection until 2017. In 2017, what happened is we brought together the disparate parts of our collections that were in different hands of different departments. So we have the Illuminations collection. That was actually the archive of the Illuminations department. And they just every time they designed something, they put it in a room. And it's only as you look back that you suddenly think, hang on, this is is important. Uh, The same with our tourism department. And so in 2017, all these different parts of the council collections were brought together including the local studies and the Yama Yama suits were within the local studies collection. And so at the moment on the records, they say found in store (laughs) because we're not quite sure how they entered the local studies collection. We're not quite sure when they entered the local studies collection. We're assuming by donation. And so, yeah, I mean, we, we don't have a lot catalogued because we don't have the history of other museums. We've not got that history of people working on the collection and creating lists. So our next ambition, once we open the doors, is to be able to publish online a catalogue and that people search everything we've got so that they can see the amazing resources available.
0: Amazing. Now, what other items of costume or fashion can we expect to find in the Chateau Museum collections? Oh,
1: it's exciting. A um, lot of um, stage costumes, a lot of dance costumes, ballroom dresses, uh, tuxedos, um, uh, uh, magic outfits with the the associated compartments, etc, um, tricks, props, you know, it's hard to talk about them without giving things away. <laughs> 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 Hat, I mean, we've got amazing in the collections, we've got amazing circus headdresses, so the circus hats and the circus, they're all bejeweled crowns with feathers and um, I mean it's, it's not all that side of things there's the other side of things as well but um, in terms of costume and textiles yeah it's 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 glorious
0: Caroline I cannot wait to come and visit I really can't wait it's gonna be so amazing we can't wait to have you <laughs> <laughs> I could talk about Blackpool's history forever But I also wanted to find out more about how contemporary artists are responding to the town's entertainment heritage. I was thrilled to speak to artist Garth Grattricks about his work on seaside semiotics and queering the coast.
2: Hello, I am Garth Grattricks. I'm a contemporary visual artist, curator and founding director of Abingdon Studios and I live and work in Blackpool.
0: I've been finding out more about the fantastic yama-yama suits at Showtown Museum, which were worn by guests to the Pleasure Beach in the 30s. What's your earliest memory of the Pleasure Beach?
2: I mean, the most immediate um, memory for the Pleasure Beach is a ride called the Steeple Chase, which I believe is still there, and it's absolutely terrifying. (laughs) Even as an adult now, it's terrifying. It's basically a lot of horses that over lean with your body weight round corners up in the sky. God knows what health and safety officers were around back in those days in the early eighties, well late eighties, early nineties. Um, but for me, it was about this kind of this the different scales of intimacy that a child or a family can access together. So there's that really moment of that kind of inclusion of spectacle from teacups in terms of this quintessential quaintness of amusements and then this into the big one and these astronomical things that really change a landscape. Um, so I think that I date that kind of, I suppose a bit like an etymology of progress and play is, is something that I think of when I explore the Pleasure Beach, but also Blackpool as a wider destination, I suppose.
0: I absolutely love that. I've been on the Chase, Love it. Uh, I also particularly love the Tunnel of Love, which dates back to about 1904 or something, I think.
2: Yeah. Amazing.
0: Yeah. So beautiful. Yeah. Now, how does Blackpool's entertainment heritage feature in or inspire your work?
2: Yeah, it's interesting because I suppose when I approach Blackpool, it's almost about um, a reaction and a response to a place that I originate from. So with that, it comes with levels of extraction, um, investigation, um, queering are all things within my practice that I'm interested in. So from a heritage level, I often have these open questions of, well, what's the future heritage that's required for queer voices in a town like Blackpool, which then as a result of having that type of provocation or thinking internally, you then have to externally excavate history as it is now and the types of readings or the iterations or the archives that exist so for me what i think of in terms of blackpool's heritage is this constant spirit of collaboration between buildings between land and sea these parallels that happen in our decisions to come um momentarily for periods of rest or or reinvention um and then there's that nature of when I think about querying, it's about how you read into material um, that you are afforded access to. Um, so I think that there, in terms of heritage, questions around access of visual language, seaside semiotics. This is all things within kind of heritage that we can start to store and continue to grant access to in terms of artists or the general public or communities. Um, and then there's something there in terms of heritage and the types of tropes that happen by the coast in towns like Blackpool and this resorting in Britain um, or England or the United Kingdom. Um, however, the government wants to name us at the moment, I suppose. But there's this idea of kind of family heritage that I'm acutely aware of, understanding my origin um, through exploring it in terms of lived experience, um, which obviously. Starting to explore queer visibility more now, you have to start to go back into your own personal lived experiences and explore them through a different lens that's maybe a bit more authentic to you with a level of maturity that you have compared to childhood memories um, or feelings of oppression versus feelings of reclamation now and the need to do that. Um, so, tropes like the clown and the stripe and they, these types of personas and aesthetics very much within the heritage of Blackpool is something I tend to incorporating my
0: work. I grew up at the seaside and live in a seaside town now. I love Blackpool. Blackpool is genuinely one of my favourite places in the world. And I'm really interested in your work that you've just described, especially, you know, queering the coast as well as the materiality of the beach as well. So I'd love to hear more about some of your works and projects that explore these areas. Can you tell me about many splendid things?
2: So many splendid things within my, I guess ouvre is always a nice word to uh, throw out. Not often you get to throw that word in, into a conversation. <laughs> so my ouvre to date very much incorporates um, a way of thinking that's quite literally titled "In Collaboration With." So many splendid things was one of a col- one of the collaborations that I've done in the last three years. I've done eight collaborations with um, queer artists who all identify different to me. Um, and for me it's about a professional decision to continue to stretch and challenge what i think my work does um, for me and other people the impact of placing objects or experiences through installation or sculpture and what that does for other people and how they might look or perceive that work in any given space um so many splendid things was with james william murray who is a queer artist who's based in brighton so when we think of the coast we can't really club it all together we have to be acutely aware of total um, class divisions based on geography there are northern south north and south divides there is divisive language around the coasts and what parts of the coast get access to affluent opportunities or education and what others merely provide spectacle of entertainment like a service provider um, so there's that there was those conversations and then it was about as artists that live in that that dynamic kind of proud and problematic problematic scenario. It's, well, what do you do with that other than just represent that and talk about that? You know, that's not necessarily the artist's responsibility. There are many other people that have to explore that. So visually, it's about exploring how you reduct or reduce um, the weight of all that thinking into something that might be more minimal or camp. in its, in its For me, in terms of Blackpool, there's a lot of taking out of the density and looking anew at more of a minimal or formal inquiry around the seaside so that's where i become really curious around well how do you look at honing in on these kind of minimal qualities or these formal frolics i like to say um with other artists that are also in the coast and might have different concerns around climate or not just the object not just color not just play some people are very serious about their coastal origin and what the impact of the, the climate is right now, so there's all of those things at play when you have conversations around collaboration um, using the coast, I guess, as a as a methodology to think all of that through through visual language. So I will answer the question. I'm getting there. Many splendid things um, is a title that's borrowed from um, an essay written by Susanna Paysonen, and her, the title of her essay was called which I do have in my brain. It is literally called Many Splendid Things, Sexuality, Playfulness and Play. And it was an essay that she wrote in 2017. So we talked a lot about playfulness and the coast as a destination for play. And we looked at kind of playfulness in the context of this kind of sensory openness and curiosity that's required when you go into a space that invites you to think about play. And this kind of zest for variation and improvisation um, when you present a space that maybe is more sparse than what's expected in a coastal town. Um, So it invites collaboration of an audience as well. And that's what I really like about minimal or formal work in the way that it asks us to look at coding of lived experience rather than just representation of lived experience um, through the documentation of the body. and then in that, ironically, it reduces the information you have access to, but it also opens up choice as to what you follow or where you, where you cruise that space. So we talked a lot about how art can act as a cruising ground um, in the way that we reinterpret historical or heritage behaviors of queer people as well, in terms of how we explore safety through coding and image, um, as well as safety through where we might go to meet others or converse and discuss ideas whether based around desires of sex or desires of symbols and semiotics, so there was there was all that at play in this very formal um, display of a few things, and to which mine was a beach towel that touched the floor, and then the whole floor um, kind of bled out in the in the color that matched that beach towel. So it started to look at how a singular object can create an installation.
0: Now, I love the use of beach towels in your work, uh, such as you just mentioned. And, and for me, of course, this combines coastal life with textiles and all of those explorations that you've just kind of gone into as well. Especially I love what you're saying about that idea of play, that idea of resorting. And of course, the real kind of class histories and class stories that are still very present uh, in so many coastal towns. So your beach towels, when did you start creating these and can you tell me a bit about your Shy Girl series?
2: So I started to create the Shy Girl beach towel series um, to which there's a collection of nine now. I started that in 2019 Um, and the origin of that was, I suppose, looking at the history of my work to date before a, a landscape that was, you know, impacted by COVID. Um, before there was a removal of spaces to work of a larger scale or maybe building and constructing larger installations so there was a softening of my ideas in that sense quite literally as to well what can I make in a way that I can transport that still communicates what I want to around the coast and those kind of inquiries that I have of an artist and those questionings of place that I have so it was again about reappropriating an existing object in the way that we reappropriate language um, in terms of reclamation and use as well. So for me, the Shy Girl beach towel, the Shy Girl is literally a paint colour from a DIY store, which I have this kind of collection that I've picked up over the years of I don't know I don't understand why I'm seeing these words in an everyday society still, particularly in these spaces of, you know, very much, I guess sweeping generalizations, but heavily McKiz mode in those spaces in terms of um, the male um, and then I go in and have all of these innuendous conversations purely because I'm slightly camp in my you know I'm from I am from where I am from um, even when I'm trying not to there's always some innuendo or Kenneth Williams isms <laughs> that come out in when I speak to people so even in DIY slot shops I'm saying oh what would have you got today fellas <laughs> um, and I just can't help myself so I've then found these paint colors that I was like shy girl girly girl um pouty girl it's like why are all these pinks so gendered which we know like colors and gender and that it's not necessarily a great thing um but then there are all these other colors like fairy festival and i got fascinated with we might paint a child's bedroom in the color fairy festival and use that word fairy but it's also quite a derogatory and and shaming word that's been applied to the queer community over the years but then we reclaim it and we're all fairies on you know parade day and pride and so there's this kind of constant level of play and, and problematics of language when we look at kind of queer culture so i all the shy girl series are named based on these found paint color specifications and then they inform the compositions of each of the beach towels so some of the beach towels full tide shy girl is the introduction of the whole series but then each towel has a full name So there's titles like Shy Girl, Flamboyant Flamingo, Crown of Feathers, which has connotations of drag queens. And then also um, Flamingos is a nightclub in Blackpool in terms of its heritage, in terms of queer safe spaces. So there's these extracting language, but splicing them with a sensitivity and a connection still to where I'm from and the the kind of, I guess the social act I want to do in a kind of homage to Polari as a queer kind of hidden language too um because it isn't that but it's take it's inspired by um there's beach towels that are a bit more overt in terms of shy girl gobstopper comfy jeans and it's just this playfulness of putting things together which has an impact on how it can be read and um and by who so it, it, it allows this coding so that's the beach towels in that sense is what I, I worked with this rule of nine in my work um i have this kind of provocation of nine inches apart together away repeat. So the stripe in how I look at nine inches, the stripe in how I look at compositions using this color language um, forms heavily in the beach towel series. And I suppose was the first time that those things all came together in one object. Um, And then the rule of nine is a nonsensical rule. It comes from being asked um, intimate questions on gay dating apps around anatomy. And it's like, what a strange question or an introduction to make between two people um, seeking relationships. Um, So there was something there about performance anxiety into what you then do with those anxieties, and then how you then reform a question for yourself that feels more architectural rather than anatomical, more about how you fit in or don't fit in, in where you place objects or art. So I guess the beach tower becomes this kind of imbued object with all of that thinking. For me. Um, and then something I do with those now is I go on tour, almost unpaid tour, I will throw out there right now. Um, if anyone else is looking to see this work tour, um, call me. Um, but I go to different coastal towns and I look at kind of my proximity to other queer architecture or art spaces. So I've done a series of photographic stills of these beach towels placed in different coastal landscapes, like Eastbourne, um, Plymouth, Hull at Margate, and it starts to just inform, I guess, an observational research way of looking at these objects and the coast. Um, and it also extends the collection in that sense, because there are only nine physical objects, but then there's a plethora of more images of the image. Yeah, So I suppose in terms of Shy Girl as a Beach Tower series, the context in how they get displayed is kind of an iteration within my wider intervention or installation practice. You walk into an entrance at the Grundy Art Gallery into a checkered floor foyer, and you look up and you see a rotunda balcony that has been covered with a series of blue stripes called Cottage by the Sea. Um, On those stripes, as you look up, there are three beach towels, two pristinely placed over, as if drying on your holiday, over your balcony, and one strewn as if someone is due to come back to it or just thrown it off, ready to go skinny dipping somewhere else in the town. Um, So when you look up through there, you also have the rotunda glass um, ceiling, which is circular in this kind of dome. So I was very interested in Bruno Minari as someone that works across disciplines of architecture, artist design, um, and looking at the square and the circle and the triangle in the way that you work with a square rotunda, a glass circular dome, and then the triangle incorporated within the beach towel designs, half-mast behind this stripe composition that I work with. And obviously, well, not obviously to everybody, but within queer culture, the pink triangle is linked to symbols of shame within prisoner of war camps in World War II. Um, And it was one of a series of coded triangles that had various different meanings, dependent on what community you belonged to. and what I guess a, a regime back then saw as to be shamed and visually shamed. So, if you if you were Jehovah's Witness, um, homosexual, and Polish, you would have quite a lovely decolletage of triangles on your on your clothing, which again were striped clothing. So the blue triangles had various different connotations, and um, the blue stripes had various meanings as well in terms of personal lived history and also the history of queer people how they've been shamed and imprisoned so it's quite loaded whilst also still very coastally playful um the original blackpool football strip was also blue and white stripes and my grandfather was a footballer for them in their heyday in the 50s and 60s um and my um father was a clown so there was also a clown character that was performed in that gallery as well so the towels started to work in this metaphor of revealing and concealing of identities and how you perform within society. Um, That was adopting the nine-inch rule again. So as you went round, the stripes um, didn't match. So it's a removal of this kind of symmetry and reassurance of the stripe historically, when you look at minimalism uh, or artists like Daniel Burren, who's fantastic in the use of stripe. um, So I would never claim that I am stripe man of the future. Um, That is their work my stripe is more about an ongoing conversation as to where you fit in or don't fit in in pre-existing architecture that you might be invited to show in as a queer artist so there's always a margin of error in the work as you navigate it um and it was i guess this first idea of looking at a rotunda which traditionally would have been a walk around experience along the walls it would have had framed salon type hangs so then to remove any use of world of works on the walls and only look at this central hole um, in its playful playfulness as well, looking through the hole um, with this nine-inch balcony um, that you then lent on. So it invited a queer congregation, which I really like to explore That idea of, cruising around an object to then lean on it and look through it. And then you are watching people come in and out the gallery as well. So you're creating these hierarchical scales just from the inclusion of an installation in the middle of a hole in the ceiling or floor, depending on how you look at it.
0: And the towels themselves, where did you have them made? Or did you make them yourself? How did they come into being?
2: I very much made a decision with how I was making the towels based on this idea that they are low cost commercial objects now. Now, Obviously the history and the heritage of a beach towel comes from high cost, very dense thick towels originating in Turkey into you know, the 1920s, and we can look at Chanel's use of a tower, which then influenced beach towels of a fashion now. Um, but, you know, that I find that really interesting in how the beach towel evolved um, as an accessible object that everybody could own or as an, I guess, like the first level, I guess the first example of like a social plinth structure in the way that we might look at being our own monuments and keeping ourselves preserved. You know, you put the beach towel down to protect your clothing, so you're using cloth to protect cloth in that in that layer in the layering. Um, So I find that really fascinating. And then how a beach towel becomes an object synonymous to shifts in class and um, acceptance of skin tone and color and tanning. You know, tanning before Chanel got sunburned at the film at Cannes Film Festival and then decided, well, sod it, that's just part of that. That is the thing. It's trendy now. You know, before that to have a tan was seen as working class and impoverished because you were working outdoors. Um, so yeah, I find it really fascinating how this beach tower becomes this plinth that we take with us to the coast in which to rest on and perform in a different way in how we want ourselves to be seen in society. Um, I've not fully answered your question yet in terms of it's commercially printed um, and they are this kind of sheer Almost um, velvet curtain esque fabric, um, and they all have a seam, a seam around, just this very soft white seam that's also in a color called wink wink. Um, so just the edges of the towel kind of have a playfulness too, um, and they're just they they are commercial, and it, it's not necessarily a thought of my I'm going to make hundreds of them. There's nine as they sit now. If I was to make more beach towels, they wouldn't have the same composition on them. It's about looking at that rule of nine as Restriction as liberation, I suppose, in that way of looking at rules.
0: And you often explore textiles in your work, is that right?
2: There's not just the beach towels now. (laughs) There is, um, I look at kind of flagging and flags and banners in terms of parades and and what we're proud of in terms of visual language. So I did a a series of banners within the community, um, within LGBT community kind of engagement projects to, and they were called... Fairy Festival, Flamboyant Flamingo, Pursuit of Happiness. Um, and then they got used within Blackpool Parade um, and Blackpool Pride Parade. Um, and hopefully they'll continue to be used in kind of artist contributions to community, um, kind of framing of their identities and celebrations. There's this sil- collection of nine silk hankies, um, which I also have in different color compositions um, in kind of reference to the um, hanky code, which has various meanings depending on what part of the globe you are from. But again, that's around how, um, clothing and the semiotics of clothing. So Hal Fisher as a photographer and an artist is probably a really good reference for gay semiotics in the seventies and looking at the hanky code within, um, dress, um, and attire of gay men. And depending on where you place things on your body, it means different things around desire and interests. So I now have this kind of paint colour equivalent of the hanky code. that um, I don't really set what each one means, but I'm quite curious what people might think the sling your hook hanky means, um, or the gobstopper hanky means, and where is it on the body, and what might that do in terms of courtship? Um, and that's something I'm curious about at the moment as well.
0: Can you tell me a bit about Abingdon Studios, and especially the We're Still Here projects?
2: So Abingdon Studios, Um, was the first um, visual art studio and project space to open on the Lancashire coastline. Um, So that's something I'm quite proud of um, in terms of artists impacting um, where they are from um, and taking some ownership and autonomy as to how they contribute to a growing art sector. Um, So Abingdon now has been established for 10 years officially as a business It began as a piece of research around the country, looking at other studio facilities, what the do's and the don'ts are, what the minimum requirements of it could be, um, and getting a campaign together to show to the council that there is a vested interest in seeing a studio provision in Blackpool. Um, So I suppose an early sign of lobbying in that sense, and it worked, and they invested in us for a couple of years. Um, And now we are, um, well, sustaining is the wrong word in any artist-led space, Constantly exploring our sustainability, I suppose is the right way to look at that. Um, And we have really good working relationships um, with Arts Council England now and delivering really interesting programmes that include work leisure as a residency programme that we've been running since 2017 um, and supporting artists who come to Blackpool in a way that shows us a different response to what we think we know Blackpool offers. Um, So that's a constant kind of learning and unlearning around the landscape that we think we know um and that's important to us um and then we have our project space that commissions solo shows or group shows as well um we're still here began as our first introduction and pilot project with heritage lottery funding um obviously there's the showtown uh, museum in blackpool but there was no other heritage funded projects at the time so it became quite radical to think of the artist-led space above a market in the town center um receiving the other heritage bit of money to look at how queer voices are collected and archived moving forwards. So I talked a bit earlier about future heritage and thinking about contemporary heritage. Um, Blackpool could very easily spend a 100 years exploring its existing buildings and its civil engineering kind of achievements. But I suppose the people of Blackpool, particularly queer communities in the Pink Pound, um, aren't really represented or written in policy to make sure they are included within collections and acquisitions approaches. So for me, there's questions there. And then what does an artist led space offer in terms of shared learning and collaboration in how that can be achieved with some level of radicalism? Um, a council collection might not be able to have the the right voice for a queer collection. So what does it look like if we house a queer collection that feels more authentic to the, the contributors in that sense? So that's something that we're thinking of longer term. It began as a digital archive. It was about teaching people skills within documenting oral histories. Um, And then that's been a very small but kind of reasonably formed project as a pilot. And then it's now about looking at further investment as to what we do then to acquire and collect certain queer materials that help artists that we commission in the future have access to an alternative resource in the town in terms of adding to research as well. In terms of coastal lived experiences so that's we're still here
0: and just before we end you mentioned your dad was a clown can you share a bit more about that
2: so my dad was rainbow the clown and he performed in the late 90s into the early noughties as part of um, his process of rehabilitation so it became a character that had this custom face i don't know if you know but the history of clowns is no no clown has the same face um, and they're copyright by law. Um, so what I did was look at Rainbow Second in this nonsensical family lineage of non-professional clowning um, in that way, because it just added to a level of humour and I guess camp as the antithesis of minimalism.
0: You can find the Yama Yama suits at Showtown Museum in Blackpool. They also feature in the Lancashire Textile Gallery, a collaboration between Gawthorpe Textiles Collection the University of Central Lancashire, and the British Textile Biennial, with contributions from museums and archives across the county. Head to LancashireTextileGallery.com to find out more about its changing programme of collections, exhibitions, and artist commissions. The British Textile Biennial 2023 runs from the 29th of September to the 29th of October, exploring the environmental impact and regenerative potential of textiles and fashion. You can find out more on Twitter at Textile Biennial and Facebook and Instagram at British Textile Biennial. See you next time.